This podcast is proudly brought to you by Sky Racing and Ingress, number one in its field. The 22 trainers who use Caulfield as a training base were stunned to learn late last year that they'll be required to relocate by the year 2023. A new long-term lease brokered by the Caulfield Racecourse Reserve Trust and the Victorian State Government secures Caulfield as a racing venue for the next 65 years, but not as a training centre. An essential requirement of that lease is that the community is to have much greater use and access to the racecourse reserve. One trainer deeply upset by the news is Colin Little, who was born a stone's throw from the racecourse and has lived all of his life in the precinct. He was an apprentice jockey at Caulfield and he's been training at Caulfield with great success for half a century. I'm delighted to welcome multiple Group 1 winning trainer, Colin Little, to our podcast. Thanks for your time, Col. Morning, John. Well, they say there's an ugly side to progress and this must be very distressing news for a bloke like you. You've spent almost every day of your life at Caulfield. Well, that's true. That's true. Uh, as you said in the intro, I was born stone's throw away and uh, I haven't gone far in life. I've sort of moved about half a kilo, yeah. half a kilometre. <laughs> yeah. Here's one, Cole. Looking ahead to 2023, do you see yourself going to all the trouble and all the pressure and all the expense of relocating or might you be having a pretty deep think about your future when 2023 rolls around? Well, the only good thing about the demise of Caulfield, John, is that they've given us five years from last November, and that's a, that's a long time. Mm. I mean, it's not like we have to get out in 12 months or so. So they, they have given us a, a, a lot of time to uh, make a decision where we go, and they've uh, guaranteed us that they'll keep the facilities up to scratch. So we have a long time to think about it. Uh, the industry is uh, very keen on pushing the trainers to the new track at Nanagoon or Cranbourne and they're uh, expanding the facilities there and they're very keen for people to go there. And I think a lot of the existing trainers will finish up down there, but mm. we don't have to do anything for a long time and we don't have to make a decision and I certainly don't have to make a decision mm. in the short term. Your dad was a jockey whose name was Bill. He rode his share of winners in Melbourne and he later joined a group of Australian jockeys who rode in India and there were plenty of them, uh, people like Jim Munro and uh, Sid Cracknell and Edgar Britt and many others. I think India back in the 1930s, Cole, was much akin to Hong Kong in the modern era where Australian jockeys can't get there fast enough. Well, apparently that's right. It was a little bit before my time or before I was aware what was going on. But, yeah, my dad uh, took a retainer to go to Calcutta and I think the Maharajas used to uh, entice them over there and uh, there are some photos of these uh, half a dozen jockeys sitting around a table in three-piece suits with silverware all over the place and the Maharaja at the top of the table. And Mm. they were apparently treated like kings and that was a place to go, you know, if you got a, uh, a contract to go to Calcutta or India, that was a place to go, much more than England. Yes. Well, you were always around racing stables as a kid, helping out before school and after school. 
And like most Caulfield kids, you'd be on a pony cantering around the racetrack against the rules, I imagine. Well, there wasn't many rules in those days, John. <laughs> but there was some thought when I was well, around 13 or 14 because uh, my father was a jockey and my mother was uh, involved in the racing game and, and her family way. But mm. uh, the way it was done in those days was... Uh, my father teed up with a trainer at Caulfield, a, a tremendously well-respected trainer called Ken Hilton, mm. and I, pre-school, would come over and jump on the pony and bolt around the track and yeah. invariably get dropped at the gap and you'd get back on again, and that's the way you would learn to ride. There was no supervision. Mm. And, uh, you know, so it, it was Ken Hilton's stable where I started at 13 or 14 and learned mm. to ride the pony and there was some thought that even though I was obviously fairly big mm. for a jockey, we might have a go. Yeah. And I did actually have a go. You did. Um, you became apprentice to Rod Turvey, but that arrangement yes. ended when he went to Hong Kong to train. He must have been one of the first of the Aussie trainers to go to Hong Kong. Yes, I think he was one of the first. Um, uh, Hong Kong in those days was amateur. And then they decided to turn professional, and so they were looking for professional trainers. And there was a well, it's a long time ago, but I know Rod Turvey was one of the first to go. So I transferred to a, a chap that you may know called Arthur Ward. Mm. Now, Cole, you've stunned me with that one. You have <laughs> stunned me because I had no idea that Arthur Ward ever trained in Melbourne. I had lunch just a week or so back with Kevin Langby, former great jockey who at one time had a retainer with the Arthur Ward stable, and I mentioned it to him, and he too was completely stunned. He had no idea Arthur Ward ever trained in Melbourne. Yes, yes, no, it's a, it's a fact. I don't know if he trained for a hell of a long time, but he started off when he... When he uh, retired from riding and um, decided to train, he set up in Melbourne at Caulfield. Mm. Well, your weight was already out of control, but you did last long enough to have about six race rides, no winners, but a lot of fun, and it's very good dinner party material. <laughs> yeah, there's a bit of a story about... Uh, you know, there was no trials in those days and you used to, uh, the stewards would come to the track and you'd punch one out on the straight and they'd say, yep, yeah, that's near enough. You know, <laughs> you can become a, an apprentice jockey and ride in races. So yeah. if, you're, if you're aware of the R.M. Williams boots, they're sort of Cuban heel and uh, their stirrup iron fits right into the insert of the um, of the boot riding boots yeah. of a day. Mm -hmm. But it's a different story when you go to race day because they have very light boots and there's no instep and so my first ride was a Caulfield amazingly when you think about it because apprentices these days are not allowed near the, the metropolitan areas for quite some time but my first ride was at Caulfield and it was new to me about these new flat soled little tiny boots and I kicked it out of the barrier and kicked my feet straight out of the irons so I went round at Caulfield without the irons my first oh, ride in the race. Lovely feeling. <laughs> mm. You mentioned a name there, Cole Ken Hilton, a Caulfield trainer. Now, there was a certain horse trained by Ken Hilton who couldn't have been better named. His name was Lord, and everybody was in awe of him. 
He raced into his ninth year. He won 28 and a half races, 20 and a half of them at Wait for Age, and he won 21 races on the Caulfield track. You were telling me that when Lord approached, people would stand aside to let him by. Well, that's right. So when I was riding that pony around the track, uh, they were in awe of this horse and it sort of went over my head a little bit because I was just interested in this little white pony. But I, you know, they were just in awe of this horse. He would come out of the box and he'd walk down to the track and everyone would say, you know, that's Lord, that's Lord. Yeah. And, he, you know, he's a fantastic horse. He, apart from all his wins, he won five members. Memsey stakes in a row. Goodness me. And mm. then I think he ran third and then second. And then the next year, I don't think he competed, but uh, Hilton won it with Future. So, mm. you know, over about eight or nine years, Hilton basically nearly won the race every time. Yes. I think Lord is best remembered for his narrow defeat by the great Tullock in the Queen's Plate of 1960. Tullock, as we all know, had been off the scene for almost two years. His comeback was extraordinary and he beat Lord narrowly, first up after two years. Yes, well, I wasn't, uh, I don't remember that, but um, Mm. they were certainly in awe of this horse and uh, the story goes that uh, having been at this stable and... uh, just trying to give it a name when I was about 35 years later, I was given the opportunity of training from this stable. And mm. when I thought about it, my wife had decided to turn the house into a bed and breakfast with a racing theme. Mm. And uh, the house is a little bit dilapidated and Jackie sort of spent a lot of uh, time and a bit of money uh, really uh, restoring the house. But it needed a name because up until then, the stable had been called uh, Hilton's Joint and then it was his uh, apprentice that then took over called Brian Rolfe and it was called Rolfe's Joint and it was in danger of being called Little's Joint, which is probably not good <laughs> enough for a bed and breakfast. No. <laughs> so no. I thought about it and then we decided that, gee, this horse, what was that horse that they were in awe of when I was 13? Oh, it was, it's Lord. Yeah. So we called the place Lord Lodge, and now the mail comes to Lord Lodge, and it's terribly well known. Mm. It was a very, uh, very much upmarket small bed and breakfast, one of the top forties in Victoria. Mm. Uh, while my wife ran it, but mm. unfortunately, I lost Jackie about uh, eight or nine years ago, and that was the end of the uh, bed yeah. and breakfast. She was wonderfully innovative and resourceful, Cole, from all reports, and she could usually come up with the right solution for things. Yes, that's true. Yeah, she's a, a marvellous woman, but uh, had a very difficult time with a brain tumour that eventually got her. Yes, yes, I know. It was very sad and widely reported at the time. She was very popular and well-respected. You're... Early training involvement was on a hobby basis. You had one or two horses, you'd work them in the dark before going to your other job in the building trade. How long did that last? Um, well, yes, uh, having been a failed apprentice, what what to do next? And uh, my mum was pretty keen for me to get a trade. Um, so I did go into the building uh, caper, uh, originally just in small uh joinery shops and then I expanded out to the multi-storey building. So I had a, mm. a good grounding, but racing was all my always my passion. So in my middle 
20s probably, I decided that I'd somehow get a horse and I'd train it pre and post work. Mm. And I'm not sure if I had a license at the time, but uh, eventually uh, I was granted a license in probably middle 20s. But I was pretty naive in the way of business and sort of put a shingle out of the front door saying, Colin Little, uh, racehorse trainer. And I thought, you know, they'd come flocking, but <laughs> nothing happened. <laughs> That's life. Yeah, so, uh, you know, I had to make something happen, you know, young and single and living on the smell of an oily rag. So mm. it wasn't a big drama, but eventually I decided to have a crack full time. But, you know, yeah. one or two horses wasn't going to cut it. No. So I went to New Zealand with the idea of sort of big mooring or stealing some horses. Worst case scenario, I might have to buy one. Mm. Um, and I bought it two or three back, and I don't think they were much good, but. The clients that we were able to involve in those horses stuck for a while and then next year we went and acquired some other horses and those horses sort of started it on the way. Mm. So it took a while, but, um, yeah, eventually we got going. Carl, your first winner was a filly with a cult's name. She was called <laughs> Sinatra at the Terralgan track. That's true, yeah. Um, I'm not sure why she was called Sinatra, but it uh, was a memorable day. Uh, we even backed it, so uh, <laughs> Good. Um, yeah, it's a, always a memorable day, the first winner. I love the story about your first city winner. You played squash in those days with a friend whose sister had been bequeathed a mare and foal, and that foal was later named Tune-Up, and in giving you your first Metropolitan win, she also gave a bloke called Roy Higgins one of his 11 Melbourne premierships. That's true. It's a, uh, Tune-up uh, was my first winner. It was owned by Joan Heerman, who was the sister of Noel, uh, who was a squash player. And uh, I was a pretty young bloke, but I talked her into uh, giving the horse to myself and uh, off we went. She's pretty good filly, one in town, and, and we were coming up to the end of the season. She was given a bit of weight, and uh, I thought that um, Roy Higgins was neck and neck trying to win the premiership, and he was, Roy was really struggling in those days with weight, and mm. this filly had uh, nine stone, 57, mm. and Roy could about, that's about all he could ride, so... I rang Roy and offered him the ride, and he was, yeah, I'll ride it for you. And it was sort of highlight of my life at the time that Roy Higgins mm. could ride a winner for myself. Mm. And he actually won the premiership, and I think he might have just won it by one. Yes. So it was a great thrill for me to have that fantastic uh, person and jockey ride a winner for me. Most people in Victorian racing, and many all over Australia, have a Roy Higgins story to tell. Uh, I know you thought the world of him, and I think you described him as a man amongst men. Well, that's true. He, he is the, the nicest person I've ever met in racing, mm. the best person I've ever met in racing, and having stables right next door to Angus Armanasco where he trained, uh, Roy used to ride work here. And I was very friendly with a lot of the staff, and they used to tell me that uh, – Roy would ride a winner on Saturday and then the strapper of that horse would receive $200, mm. maybe even £200 yeah. on on the Tuesday after the race. And that was uh, unheard of, you know, for the jockey to be uh, slinging the strapper, but that's what Roy did. Yeah. yeah. I'm not one little bit surprised, Colin. Now, 
Joan Heerman, uh, whom you mentioned earlier, was part owner of the horse who really got your career going. A chestnut gelding called Testimony. He won 13 yeah. races in all, and this is quite staggering. All 13 wins were on metropolitan tracks. He won a couple of Group 3s. He won a listed. He ran second in a Goodwood handicap. What a good horse he was. Yes, well, he was uh, the next foal out of that mare that uh, Mrs. Hammond, Joan Hammond, had uh, been bequeathed, and uh, he was a great, big, hulking horse. Uh, it was a very good horse from day one, and, uh, you know, he sort of really put me on the map a bit. He mm. he started favourite as a three-year-old in the futurity, having won, oh, I don't know, two or three or four races easily, and he had a massive bleeding attack. Harry White rode him, and uh, it really did rock us all. He, he was in quite a bad way at the races. There was some thought that he mightn't make it. Mm. It was such a bad bleed. But we looked after him and put him away for quite some time. And he came back and never looked like bleeding again. And, you know, he was a real powerhouse. He was just sit up on the pace, and uh, he'd almost break their heart. You know, he just uh, – horses would try to go with him, and they, they he'd, he'd break them, and then they'd sit back off him, and they couldn't pick him up. So mm. – he he either lead or sit up running second, and as you said, he won thirteen in town. So yeah. he's uh, he's a great horse for me. There's no doubt, El Segundo is the best horse you've ever trained. Thirty-five starts, twelve wins, four seconds, four thirds, almost four million dollars, four Group Ones. He ran in three Cox Plates. That's something to be proud of. To keep a horse up for three Cox Plates, he had a win. A second and a third. Now, let's take it step by step, Cole, because it's a good story. His mother was a mare called Palos Verdes. You had trained her previously. She was pretty useful too. She won 10 races. Palos Verdes was very good. Um, she was an unusual filly in the sense that she only would come good when it was hot. So every year we going through winter in Melbourne trying to get her going for the spring. I, I just couldn't get her going for the spring. Mm. But when we got over spring and got into the warmer weather, she was very good. She won Hobart Cups when it was 40 degrees. She won Mornington Cups when it was 40 degrees. She won the Baggett on New Year's Day. She won mm. the Mannion Cup and broke the track record, I think, yeah. Rose Hill. I remember calling her in that one. Yeah, she was very, very good. Uh, tremendous staying uh, mare. Uh, she won the baggot, and the next day she had a bowed tendon. And I think yeah. we tried to get her going, but that was the end of it. But she was terribly, terribly good mare, but mm. had that unusual idiosyncrasy that she just didn't do well in winter. Mm. And to get uh, to get her going for the spring in winter, one year I sent her to um, Brisbane mm. with – Darren's brother, Michael Gauchy, mm. um, he he took her up there, but unfortunately she became ill on the float. I think there was a bit of travel sickness and, uh, you know, that was the end of the, another spring. So it was, you know, I really thought she would be a Caulfield Cup horse, uh, but I just, you know, as I said, I just couldn't ever get her going in the cold weather. Mm. Get you to stand by there, Cole. We're going to pause for a break on the podcast and we'll be back right after this. The 2019 English Australian Broodmare and Weanling Sale and the Chairman's Sale were an overwhelming success. 
The chairman's sale ended with a clearance rate of 92% and an average of over $427,000, a record for a Southern Hemisphere sale. On a memorable evening at Riverside, four mares sold for a million or more, two of them selling for two million or more, and they were Maastricht Dam of Loving Gabby and dual Group 1 winning mare Srikandi, while a further seven sold for $500,000 or more. Lot 1, a trapeze artist breeding right for next season, made $105,000 for injured jockey Ty Angland, who was present at the sale with his wife Erin. The two days of select and general race fillies and brood mares averaged over $42,000 with a clearance rate of 76%. Select weanlings averaged $36,000 with an 85% clearance. The four-day sale grossed almost $40 million. You'll find the full sales results and information on upcoming sales on inglis.com.au. My special guest is Victorian trainer Colin Little. You tell a good story about Palos Verdes. Uh, you had her in the Caulfield stable. Clary Connors had opened a stable next door and one day he asked you if you could put a cult in your complex because he was short of room. He put a snippets cult right next to Palos Verdes, and all hell broke loose. <laughs> well, that's true. Uh, I've been uh, very, very friendly with Clary for a long time, and whenever I go to Sydney, I stay with Clary. And Clary uh, brought his horses down. He'd been, I think, coming uh, to Caulfield and Hilton's place even before I was here. But he uh, he always stayed here with his good horses and had tremendous success, you know, almost won a Caulfield Cup, won Oaks and won all sorts of races here, mm. um, staying at my, my place. But he asked me, could he just have a box for a day or so because he was full next door. So, of course, yes, I'll accommodate him. But unfortunately, the horse he sent round was a colt and had just run in the Caulfield Guineas, but he'd been... Oh, 50 to 1 and uh, mm. of no consequence. But he took a real shine to Palos Verdos, who <laughs> I was, you know, protecting and she was, you know, favourite in most races. And uh, I kept ringing Clary, can you get this thing out of here? It's driving my silly mad. Like he's yeah. he really taken a shine to her and uh, he wants to jump out of the box and get in the box with her. Mm. Anyway, uh, eventually that horse, uh, he didn't uh, mate up with Palos Verdos, but, uh, several years later in New Zealand, the horse we probably should tell you now is Pings, and several years later he caught up with her in New Zealand and the result was El Segundo. Ah, what a great story. What a great story. <laughs> Pins was pretty useful. He won seven out of 14. He won $1.4 million, including the Australian Guineas, a Group 1, and three Group 2s. Then he went to stud in New Zealand, as you've just mentioned. Now, well, he was a good horse. He oh, trained he? at Caulfield, and uh, I had a horse uh, Oval Office. Uh, mm. uh, he was pretty handy horse Oval Office, but uh, we couldn't beat Pings, and we chased him around all over the place. But uh, mm. Pings was just too good and beat us in the Australian, uh, no, the Guineas at Flemington in the autumn. He beat us there, and mm. he beat us everywhere. We just Oval Office, pretty underrated horse, but he just couldn't mm. beat Pings. Well, El Segundo won six of his first nine. 
In fact, he won a Group 1 at only his ninth start and he won it easily. It was the Caulfield Stakes with Darren Gauchy up. He then ran a creditable sixth in the Caulfield Cup, only a couple of lengths from the winner. Then you gave him a long blow. Now, when he came back, he went second in the Orish Star. He won the Memsey. He won the Underwood. That was his second Group 1. He ran third in the Yalumba and then second, beaten a lip in the Cox Plate, won by Fields of Omar, his second Cox Plate. Well, that's right. He was a great horse. Uh, you only get one of those horses in your lifetime, but he'd won the lead-up to the Caulfield Cup with 58, and he had 48 in the Caulfield Cup. Mm. I could have ran him in the Cox Plate, but we just, you know, we just starry-eyed with the Caulfield Cup and mm. looked like a handicapping certainty. Yeah with the reduction of 10 kilos. But I stood in the mounting yard with Darren just before the race, and Darren said, I want to go forward. And I said, uh, oh, Darren, he gets back this horse all the time. His first run, a mile and a half, you know. Mm. And it was just a few minutes before the race, you know. We hadn't really discussed it. Darren knew the horse, and so did I, and I had faith in Darren. But he said, I want to go forward. And I looked at him and said, no. Anyway, he got back sixth or seventh on the fence. Lachlan River was a, a a giant of a horse on his outside and Gouch spent a furlong trying to push him out the way, but he was too strong and Darren said later on he was just using up so much energy to push him out the way. He had to give up and sort of ride him for, for luck and the luck didn't come. And he he just never got out in the Caulfield Cup and it was my fault, not get Darren. Darren wanted to ride him forward and I always remember that, that, you know, it was the trainer's error that didn't want to uh, take the jockey's advice. No, well, <laughs> we live and learn, but racing's like that, Cole. God, you know, if or but <laughs> in racing. Darren Gouchy won seven races on him altogether, including two Group 1s. Interesting to note, when he won his maiden, his very first win at Cranbourne, the jockey was Michelle Payne. That's right. Um, um, Danny Brereton had ridden the horse his first start and ran second, at, and he was pretty immature, backward horse, so I turned him out and he came back and I just forget the particulars, but yes, uh, Michelle rode him, got back at Cranbourne, won the maiden, broke the track record <laughs> in the maiden. It still stands. And... Uh, she came in and said, uh, I'd like to stick with this horse. I think he, he's got a bit of a future. Mm. So that was okay, but uh, she was riding him the next start at Geelong and she fell off uh, that morning at the track and she came to me in tears holding a wrist and said, I'll be able to ride it. I'll be able to ride it. It'll be okay. <laughs> well, it turned out she'd broken a bone in her hand and there was no hope, but she was still trying to, you know, stay on the horse, and yeah. Blake Shin rode the horse, and uh, he was a pickup uh, jockey on the day. He just had no luck, got hemmed in, couldn't get out, and didn't win. Anyway, that, that was all right. It was just bad luck, and then Darren got on the horse and, and stayed there for a long time. When El Segundo resumed in the autumn of 2007, Damien Oliver took over. He won the Carline Stakes Group 2. He won the CF4 Group 1. 
and he rode him first up after a spell when third in the Ori Star, and then he jumped off, which must have come as a surprise. That's right. Well, there was a pretty good horse trained by Tony Vassell called uh, Harada Sun at the time, and uh, he was trained at Caulfield, obviously, and uh, he'd been sold to Coolmore as a stallion, and I think Coolmore had approached uh, Ollie and sort of asked, could he ride that horse, and he was a pretty good horse, and there may have been some inducement. I don't really know, but, yeah, it shocked us all that uh, he would get off. Um Anyway, that was, uh, you know, you've got to roll with the punches in this game. And I looked around and there was a young bloke that was going pretty well. I called him Cool Hand Luke. He was riding for uh, Peter Moody here. And he looked terribly laid back, laconic sort of a bloke. And uh, that's what we wanted for the horse. And uh, I said to Peter Moody, I think I might put uh, Luke Nolan on El Segundo. And he, he rang Luke apparently later that day and said, I think, I've got you the ride on El Segundo. <laughs> I've got you the ride. And Luke said, yeah, in my dreams. <laughs> yeah, really. Anyway, they're a very good combination. Of course, so was Darren. It was terribly unfortunate that the owners just made the decision to move on as is their right. Mm. But uh, Luke, um, you know, was able to win the Cox Plate. That, uh, But he was a much better horse the second year. Mm. The first year he ran in the Cox Plate, I wasn't really happy with him all week. Mm. But uh, and he just was beaten an inch with Darren on him, but he was a much better horse the next year, and you know won in hindsight mm. reasonably easily. Well, Luke Nolan had those four rides in the spring of 07. Fourth in the Memsey, he won the Dato Tan Chin Nam, which was a Group Two. He ran about sixth in the Turnbull, and then he easily won the Cox Plate. Now, according to my records, Cole, he didn't race again for 14 months. Was there trouble at that time? Yes, yes. He, he bowed a tendon and, um, you know, we uh, were able to – we thought we could resurrect the horse and uh, we spent a lot of time uh, rehabilitating him. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting that the, the Mayor, Palace Verdos, did a tendon after winning the Bagot and we'd uh, – Gondo was a second foal, mm-hmm. but we've had about six or seven – and nearly every one of them was bowed attendant. So it mm. seems there's a weakness in the family for some reason. They they just all do attendant eventually. Yeah. He finished up running fourth in another Cox Plate, uh, which just goes to illustrate how good he was and how tough he was. He broke down in the George Ryder, which I think was his only start in Sydney. I, I'm tickled pink to hear that he's got a good home and a good job, uh, rising 18 years of age. Yes, uh, one of the owners was friendly with uh, Studmaster up in the Hunter Valley at Amarina Stud, mm-hmm. and he was pretty keen to get him as a nanny. So that's where he's been since his retirement. He's in a big, giant paddock with grass up to his knees normally, mm-hmm. and there's 14 colts in the paddock, and he's the boss. He, he bosses them around and tells them what to do and what they can't do, and he's having a great life up there. Lovely to see. Uh, a great ending to a wonderful story, the El Segundo story. And what a talking point at that uh, Hunter Valley stud, you know, when interested parties are in that paddock, somebody can say, see that horse there? He won a cox plate. <laughs> it's a great talking point. You also trained his half-brother, Cole, Big Sir. He was by Redwood. 
he won three from 11. We haven't seen him for a year now. What happened there? Well, he won a race at Flemington. He was a very slow maturing horse. Couldn't really, we didn't really think he could win a maiden until he got out to a fairly good trip. And then he surprised me when he did win his maiden uh, and then went to Flemington uh, 2,000 metres and as mum did, he just excelled once he got out to a bit of a distance, but he looked to have a nice run and went down to see him in the vet store when he was being, uh, you know, the routine swab after the race and I looked down and there was a developing bone tendon. Oh. So history was repeating itself. So we've uh, he's uh, having rehabilitation. We're you know we're hopeful about getting him back again. But bone tendons are very very difficult. They've been around a long time, and we've tried a lot of things over the years. But you know basically, they uh, not a lot of horses return successfully. But hopefully we can get him back because he you know the time wouldn't hurt him. Uh, extra time to mature would. Uh, only help him, but you know, I'm apprehensive about you know getting him back for bone tendons, unfortunately. Well, Col, I'm enjoying our conversation so much that we've made an executive decision here. We're going to extend this interview to two segments, and this is the <laughs> end of part one or segment one with Colin Little. We'll be back with uh, part two shortly. The 2019 Inglis-Australian Broodmare and Weanling Sale and the Chairman's Sale were an overwhelming success. The Chairman's Sale ended with a clearance rate of 92% and an average of over $427,000, a record for a Southern Hemisphere sale. On a memorable evening at Riverside, four mares sold for a million or more, two of them selling for two million or more, and they were Maastricht, Dam of Loving Gabby, and dual Group 1 winning mare, Srikandi, while a further seven sold for $500,000 or more. Lot 1, a trapeze artist breeding right for next season, made $105,000 for injured jockey Ty Angland, who was present at the sale with his wife Erin. The two days of select and general race fillies and brood mares averaged over $42,000 with a clearance rate of 76%. Select weanlings averaged $36,000 with an 85% clearance. The four-day sale grossed almost $40 million. You'll find the full sales results and information on upcoming sales on inglis.com.au.